0: In 2019, I have committed myself to praying for pastors, um, in particular, uh, praying daily for some friends of mine who are pastors. As you can imagine, you have friends at work, and over the years, I've been, I'm coming up on 25 years of being in pastoral ministry, and uh, that means that over the years, from seminary till this year, I- I've developed quite a few friends who uh, are vocationally called to do what I do for a living. Uh, one of my best friends is the friend that I made in seminary. And um, he actually came and his family stayed at our house just last year. And we uh, had them here at the church. And it was just a delight to see him. We have been in touch and we've stayed in touch. But for the last several months, um, I've been a bit preoccupied. And uh, he has been too. And so we haven't been in touch. And so this past week as I've started this in 2019, praying for my pastor friends, um, I texted him to say, hey, I just want you to know I'm committed to praying for you every day this year. And uh, uh, and so let me know how. And he texted me back and said, thank you, I'm sorry I haven't been in touch. This has been the hardest season of my life. And then he proceeded to rattle off a series of things that are going on in his church, which is no no bigger than ours. He said to me, In the last six months, two lead deacons, a man and a woman, were sleeping together and unwilling to go through marital restoration, so they left the church and dragged another ten people with them. Another deacon resigned in the aftermath of that affair. Still another deacon has asked for a one-year break from serving, which, as you know, is writing on the wall for him to leave the church. Another lead deacon died of a cardiac arrest. An elder confessed to a sexting relationship with his wife's close friend. Another leader, a 48-year-old Haitian man, died in his sleep. And finally in the middle of all this, I started having chest pains and was up all night. And finally when the pain was so bad I couldn't breathe, I went to the ER where they discovered I had two pulmonary embolisms. And this is just in the last six months. This is the leadership of his church. This is the type of suffering that makes people want to give up. It's the type of pain and difficulty of um, ministry for some uh, that makes people think, I, I don't have the skills, I don't have the staying power to do this. And he's been at it for a quarter of a century. Have, have you ever experienced pain like that? Where you just felt like you wanted to give up? You felt like, I, I don't have it in me to stay with this any longer. Have you known someone who was in such unbelievable pain that they spoke of wanting their life to end. Uh, this is the kind of grief that Jesus is describing in our passage today in John 16. A grief that his disciples were going to experience. We are in the midst of Jesus' upper room discourse. That's the official title of John 14 through 17. It's a section of scripture where Jesus is giving some final instructions, some teaching He's going to pray in chapter 17, all of this on the eve of his trial and crucifixion. And during this teaching, Jesus is going to spend considerable time trying to prepare the disciples for what was about to happen. And today I'd like to briefly summarize what was going on in John 16 and then focus our attention on the final verse of this section of the passage. Um, This before he'd begin praying for them. Uh, The movement from pain to joy is what Jesus is promising. Uh, He's told by his disciples that, um, that they're going to be despondent beyond words, an unbearable pain, but then in an instant, they 're going to be transformed and filled with a joy that nobody can take from them and to, to be able to describe this, Jesus reaches into a bag of analogies and pulls out the golden the gold standard of word pictures, an experience that many women have had and many men have watched happen the birth of a child he says in verses twenty one and twenty two of john sixteen When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. If you've ever watched a woman suffer through childbirth if you are a woman and have experienced that you've seen this transformation from excruciating pain to exuberant joy Um, and as an outsider watching my wife and both of our kids had fairly long labors Um, uh, it seemed like the joy afterwards uh, was much longer than the pain but of course I didn't have to go through it so who am I to talk about it but It does beg the question, you know, what does Jesus know of when he says, in a little while, you'll see me again. This this tune, this phrase, in a little while, seems pretty convenient for somebody who has a really broad picture of eternity. I mean, the scriptures actually say that for the Lord, a year is like, you know, a very short time. You know, a, a thousand years is like a day. You're, you're, you're dealing with a, a person with a perspective that is fairly eternal. So in a little while could mean something very different to Jesus. And in his commentary on the gospel of John, R.C. Sproul made a humorous observation by saying this, uh, that little phrase is used often in scripture to describe the interval of pain, sorrow, and grief we're called to endure in this life, still it may not seem like a little while when we're enduring something difficult. 10 minutes in an ice cream parlor is a little while. 10 minutes in a dentist chair is an eternity. Of course, in the context of Jesus 16 and John 16, Jesus is talking about this moment of despair, this really despair-inducing events of the coming day. And he's doing all he can to warn them, but they couldn't conceivably understand what was about to happen. And he's trying to tell them that even though all is going to look hopeless, you can be assured that in a little while, they'll see him again. And their hearts will be filled with joy. Jesus' assurance to his disciples in their great moment of grief is incredibly important for us to understand and learn to appropriate in our lives if we're going to endure the challenges we face. And so today I want to do something that's a little unusual for me. I want to drill deeply into a single verse from our text and hope that our focus will strengthen our hearts amidst pain. If you've ever thought of memorizing a Bible verse, this is a good place to start. John 16:33 our feature verse of the day. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' concluding statement before he begins his priestly prayers for them and us and the world around us, it offers both a reality check and a reassuring covenant, a promise that he is making. He says to us, in me you will have peace. And this language of being in him is is not incidental. Jesus is talking about all of those who are part of the redeemed covenant family. If you are in him. You know, if you're part of a fan base of a particular sports team or you're part of a drama troupe. When that group gets together, you're you're in the group. You're part of something. And this is the language of being in Christ, in Him. He's saying, if you're in me, you're going to get to have peace. And that we are to take heart. Jesus is talking about the means by which you and I would be able to face the daily struggles of life and appropriate peace Appropriate the ability to develop good cheer even in the face of super difficult circumstances. And this is really two sides of the coin that we're going to look at today as Jesus speaks of things. And the first challenge, I would say, the, the first big part of this verse that we could unpack is that trouble here is the challenge. The fact that we are going to have trouble here is in and of itself, for many of us, the problem. In the world, you will have tribulation. Um, There is a new movie that you can watch on Amazon. You have to pay for it, but it's worth it. Uh, It's about the heresy that is uh, the modern health and wealth gospel. It's exported from our country, unfortunately, to the rest of the world. Um, In my blog this week at prismchurch.com, I will include a link to this film's trailer so you can watch and see whether or not that's something you'd actually enjoy seeing. I would encourage you that it's important as a Christian in America to know the substance of this misrepresentation of the gospel because many of your friends who aren't believers, this is what they think you're talking about. And for you to be able to accurately dispel, this is not what Jesus is talking about, is going to be important for your mission to this world. See, the misrepresentation of the gospel that underlies that whole movement is really a foundational struggle for all who were raised or have lived for any length of time in the affluent Western world. I speak of myself chiefly. We have a difficult time believing that suffering is not only allowed by God, but ordained by Him for His purposes that God ordains difficulty, plans it for your life, and uses it, oftentimes not giving us any real knowledge of what its purpose is about. People will push back against this, even though Ephesians 1.11 says that he does everything according to his will and his plan. Prosperity, health, and wealth. Preachers deny that Jesus has anything to do with suffering. This is Satan's work. But how foolish is it to think that if God's plan for Jesus' exaltation included his betrayal at the hands of broken people, his humiliation at the hands of sinful people, and his death at the hands of evil people, that somehow we are exempt from that being possible for us. We have to fundamentally recognize and accept that God's will for Jesus His ordained purpose from all eternity for Jesus was that the evil of this world would marshal its forces to bring him to the cross of Calvary for us. So God does not have a problem using evil for good. As a matter of fact, he ordains it to take place. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples have begun to carry out the mission and they get arrested and in some trouble and they speak boldly before these councils and come back together with the other believers and they offer this prayer for boldness. And there's something hidden in the prayer that I think is important for us to remember along these lines. Acts chapter 4 verses 26 through 28, the prayer reads like this, "...the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed." For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was the plan of God. People, broken people, like you and me, were going to seemingly negative affect negatively affect Jesus' life to bring about something glorious, not only for Jesus, our Savior, but for anybody who would ever trust in him. See, it is not a contradiction that a loving God would ordain suffering and trial and difficulty for us. It would be a contradiction if a loving God ordained suffering for us and it had zero redemptive purpose but that's not what god has said he said that my purposes all things work together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose in other words even the suffering all things work together for good it's this ongoing experience with difficulty that is the normative experience for even those who delusionally want to go about acting as if god wants them to be healthy and wealthy they're all going to die at some point, some of them earlier than they thought. This past week I spent time talking to a woman in our church who has recently found out she has stage 4 lung cancer and is going to be with the Lord soon. And so it would beg the question of these health and wealth people, is she dying because she didn't believe something right or because she didn't do something right? I mean, how silly is it to say that it isn't God's plan for all of us to die. And Scripture, in spite of what anybody would tell you, doesn't promise you a lot of years. doesn't promise you any length of time. Jesus died at 33. Some of the apostles died in their 40s. Who's to say how long the Lord's purposes for us on this, in this world are? But what we can say is that the Lord knows And he's going to bring about that when he wants to. Do we pray for healing for people? Sure. Does God still heal people? Yes. Does he heal everybody? No, we've all got to die. So at some point, you know, he lets it go. It's not just the notion of our physical death. I I wish that that would be it. it. It's not just the inevitable physical failing of our health, the biggest problem for many of us, and I'll speak for myself, is the inevitability that in a sinful world, broken and sinful people like me and like you are going to daily bump up against us and sometimes intentionally wreck your day. Now, sometimes it's unintentionally. Sometimes it's just uh, this broken person accidentally bumping into this person. Sometimes it's just another selfish person asserting their selfish will against our selfish will. But at times it is a really bad person at their very worst, seemingly trying to mess with you. Lately I've been consoling a handful of people about their challenging work situations, which reminded me of something that a friend of mine said back when I was a young youth minister. Uh, He was a psychologist and uh, I was dealing with a couple of power brokers at this rather large church and they had it out for me and I was venting and I was being a bit foolish and speaking off the cuff. And he was very gracious and listened, but he said to me, Chuck, you look like you, you could really develop some skills in an area he called jerk management. And I thought, that's a good title for a book, Jerk Management 101. What he meant was that I needed to come to terms with the reality that difficult people aren't going anywhere. And for me, as a spoiled American who thinks I have the right to just be comfortable, and how dare you intrude on my right to feel good today, this this entitled sense that comes with being raised in a culture where I'm stuck in front of a television and every ad message is, buy this and find comfort. Go there and find comfort. Do this and you'll feel comfort. Your whole life is conditioned to avoid pain and suffering, so it's natural that when, in this culture, when you would make me uncomfortable, I would react to that angrily, as if I was owed comfort 24-7. What he was saying to me is It's a waste of time to rail against the existence of difficult people. I'm a difficult person. I'm not going anywhere. I'd be better served developing an understanding of how to take heart, how to be of good cheer, even though in this world we will have trouble. It is with disturbing regularity that I receive heartbreaking news about church pastors or church scandals. This past year, I had a dear friend who got swept up in what became an international story that eventually, ultimately caused him to resign from his position. I mean, this is a dear friend. I've spent many, many hours, many, many years going through things together with him. He made a couple of unfortunate choices two decades ago. And uh, his world got spilled out so that his name was on the front page of a British newspaper. (laughs) That's awful. I mean, we all hope to make a difference in the world. We'd all hope that people would remember our name for good things, and this is a good guy and gifted, and he is now famous for something that he had no intention of becoming famous for, and no one would want to be famous for it. This is not uncommon. This is not... Now, this type of international blow-up might be rare, but the notion of uh, a challenging situation, a difficult situation facing a pastor is is nothing that doesn't happen all the time. Yesterday, sermon completed. I get news, a friend of mine was forced to resign from his position. And I can get disheartened. I can think, the world is so broken. Christian leaders can't even get along. And it reminded me that that is one of the reasons why in 2019, I believe the Lord has really burdened me to pray for my pastor friends and pastors in general. And I'd invite you to join me and others from our prayer team. I'm going to roll out in the next couple of weeks something that I'm going to call Minister Mondays. I'll provide the names of ministers and I'm going to ask people to adopt a minister to pray for them Monday every week for this year Um, and and I'm really hopeful that we could get volunteers to commit to praying for a single minister every Monday in 2019 because I think there's a spiritual battle going on and it's tearing away some people and some of them are really good friends of mine and I've actually been there I've been to the brink of I can't take this I'm gonna I'm gonna quit not in this church but previously and, and I know what it's like to feel that sense of despair. Jesus made it clear to his disciples that in this world we're going to have trouble. What we want to pray is that those who pastor churches have the grace to take heart with the knowledge that Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus says that trouble here is the real challenge for, for many of us Westerners. That is certainly the case. But here's where he's going to give us the flip side of the coin, and that is Taking heart is the right choice. Verse 33, take heart, I've overcome the world. Take heart. Other translations render this, be of good cheer. Take heart as opposed to lose heart, which is how some of us can feel when just weighed down by what is a title, sometimes a, a tsunami of bad information. I awoke this morning and, clicked on the news browser on my computer to this headline, 20 dead as bombs target Sunday mass in Philippine Cathedral. That's how I started my day. My wife has amazing control of her emotions. Uh, Every morning she gets up, makes coffee, gets under a blanket, and then watches the news. I have no idea how a person as sweet and kind and gentle as my wife Carolyn can start the day and not lose heart watching the news. I can't do it. The old adage is is that no news is ever good news, and lots of bad news can snatch the joy right out of me. So I've got to do all kinds of things, like a pot of coffee and some Bible study before I can even think about looking at news headlines It's very difficult to be of good cheer. And yet Jesus tells us that that is possible amongst difficulty. Knowing this, I think, would be a key for us enduring his promised ongoing struggles of life. His promise that he is going to use the challenges of a broken world that he has ordained them to bring about great things in us and around us So we have to ask, how, if losing our heart is the natural reaction to difficulty, how do we take heart when all around us seems to be coming apart? Jesus gives us a quick clue in verse 32 when he tells them, I'm going away. You actually are going to abandon me. You're going to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone. But then he says, but I'm not going to be alone, for the Father's with me. This is what we've been talking about for the last couple sermons about the Holy Spirit's presence, a sense that... He knew, even amidst all of the difficulties he was facing, that he wasn't alone. Amidst all of Jesus' battles, he was cognizant, he was conscious of his Father's presence, of the Spirit's presence. And this truth is echoed in a really familiar psalm to many of us. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And sometimes in the scariest of situations, what we need the most is to know that we're not alone. I I get up some weekends, uh, Saturdays and Sundays, really early in the morning, sometimes like 5 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I will go somewhere just to, before I start, what are two busy work days generally for me. um, I'll read and I'll have coffee. And if I go to my favorite restaurant, Tom's, you know, at 6 in the morning on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, there's like me and three police officers in there. And I tell you, I have never felt so secure in my whole life. There is nothing like your devotional time with a cup of coffee and three armed guards sitting next to you to make you feel like, I don't know what's going to happen in this store, but I'm I'm pretty safe right now. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate is that one of the keys to understanding and being at rest in the midst of difficulty is that our Savior has conquered the world. He's the Savior. He is... He's fully armed. He's strapped, as they say. He, he can take care of you in your darkest corner of the world. Jesus, in this context, is really boldly stating that after 33 years of walking this earth, in this incarnate physical being that he has, he has taken all of the blows And he's still standing. The most grueling temptation known to humans and the greatest physical and emotional torture that Satan could throw at anyone. And Jesus has conquered it. He knows he's got one path to walk. He's going to endure the next 24 hours, resurrect from the dead, and then sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In Hebrews it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and now sits as the authority over which everything must submit. And practically that that means is that if He's your Savior, as it says in verse 33, if you're in Him, you have peace because your Savior has conquered the world and is sovereign over all things. If you've ever watched, and my wife won't watch a lot of it with me, but a, a cage fight in the UFC, they're a violent event and what happens though is that you get these two um, like world class athletes and they are like effectively gladiators in this blood contest and their testosterone if it's two guys is is like jacked and and when one of them knocks the other out they go like bananas like every like testosterone just comes out of every pore of their body and they throw their arms up in the air and they go, I'm the winner! And and it's almost like, wow, that's scary. Is that really what's in every human? I mean, it's not an attractive necessarily quality, but you see that this is a person who's standing victorious. I am a conqueror. And while there's nothing perverse about it, there's certainly nothing egomaniacal about it, What Jesus is saying is, take heart, I have overcome the world. I am the champion. I am the victor. That means that there's no pain he can't empathize with. There's no suffering that he doesn't turn into redemptive gain. Because that's what's happened with him. His suffering is the means by which he is now the exalted savior of the world. So therefore, we don't lose heart. We take heart. He overcame the world in his life, death, and resurrection, and Jesus now says to you and to me, you have a choice. You can take heart or lose heart. You can be of good cheer, or you can be of bad cheer and sulk. And the two-pronged approach of Jesus to take heart is to remember that the Lord is with you If you are in him. How do we do that? The scriptures say to make a daily practice of prayer. To make a daily practice of meditation on God's word. We're given the means of weekly worshiping together. Of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Enjoying what is a remembrance event. These are the things designed to help you and I remember. And help others around us do the same. The Lord is with us. But also, one of the things that Jesus does is he focuses on his glory. As I mentioned in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he knew what was coming. He knew he was a conqueror, he knew he'd overcome the world. He's telling you and I, focus your thoughts on the reality of my victory Christus Victor, Christ the victorious. He conquered life by perfectly fulfilling the law, obeying every command obedient to his father to the very end. He conquered death by absorbing the judgment of God that was really destined for us. He did so in his own body so that those who would trust in him would no longer need to fear death. They would no longer need to fear that on the other side of death was going to be judgment from God. The afterlife now is something you actually look forward to. And... Our victor has been granted, according to Matthew 28, authority over everything in heaven and on earth. His Father has given him the keys. He's in charge. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I say to you today, friends, don't know what you're battling. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. Jesus is has overcome the world. Let us pray.